Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. You're listening to an archive edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. Brain scientists say psychedelic drugs may launch a new era in psychiatric treatment. This hour, we want to explore how drugs like psilocybin and MDMA can alter individual brain cells and can help perhaps rewire the brain, it is thought. How these drugs may offer a new way to treat disorders, disorders ranging from depression and anxiety to chronic pain and PTSD. Later in the hour, we'll hear from researchers here in Iowa and also from an Iowa State representative, a Republican who advocates for psychedelic-based therapy. Now, part of the push to discover the promise that treatment with psychedelic drugs may hold comes from the lasting trauma experienced by our servicemen and women. More than 30,000 service members have taken their own lives in the years since September 11th. That's four times the number who died on the battlefield. Juliana Mercer is with us, a Marine Corps veteran, and now she's the director of veteran advocacy for the the group called Healing Breakthrough. Juliana, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ben. Understand you have an, this organization. Just to make sure we're understanding that, in short form, first of all, that your organization aims to provide better access with psychedelics assisted therapy for for veterans with PTSD who may benefit. Correct. Yes, with a specific focus on MDMA-assisted therapy, which is in the pipeline to be FDA-approved mid-2024. So our goal is to get that into the VA system accessible to veterans once it is cleared through the FDA process next year. Okay, good. And we'll hopefully have a chance to talk about the different types of drugs we're talking about in this uh, class of psychedelics. Let's start off by having you tell us about your background, please, in the military. Uh, You were a first-generation immigrant from Mexico, I understand, 16 years in the Marine Corps, deployments in both Afghanistan and Iraq. Tell us the story of how your experiences during deployment led to post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes, so my two deployments were during pretty significant times in the conflicts of the Middle East. Um, 2006 was a pretty heavy um, combat-laden deployment in Iraq. Um, I was in Fallujah, and that was my very first deployment um, with the Marine Corps. And my second deployment was in 2010 to 11, and that was in Helmand, Afghanistan. And that year was a year of some of the, the bloodiest battles that the Marine Corps had fought since Vietnam. And we took a significant number of casualties that year, um, some of the highest numbers in all of the conflicts over those 20 years. I, Between both of those deployments, I spent five years uh, working with our wounded. I was stationed at the Wounded Warrior Battalion in San Diego, California, we received our wounded that were coming back from theater, um, missing limbs um, with brain injuries, with post-traumatic stress, um, all the different types of injuries that 
that were coming back from the battlefield, we were working with them to help them reintegrate into their life post-injury. Mm-hmm. And you had experiences that then, as we indicate from PTSD, that trigger memories of the trauma you experienced with some intense emotional and physical reactions. When did you and how did you discover that you uh, were suffering from PTSD? Yeah, for me, it was a kind of a long drawn out process. Veterans inherently are very resilient. And we also do a really good job of, um, I call it one downing ourselves instead of one upping. We say, you know, I would look at my veterans with, you know, really young kids, not even of drinking age, missing three limbs. Um, and I look at them and say, I'm fine. I, I have all my body parts. Um, I'm I'm okay. And I did that for a very long time, working with a population that, you know, had visible injuries and that was really suffering um, and comparing myself and, and my experiences to them, kind of the process of me recognizing that I had, in fact, also had traumatic experiences, a quite a long process. When I did realize that, it was about 18 years into our country being at war. And um, I was in the veteran nonprofit space. So this was after I had left active duty. Um, I was working with nonprofit organizations that were helping to support veterans and found myself in a place where I was doing really purposeful work, but no longer felt like I had a purpose. And I also couldn't bring myself to continue working with veterans. So I had to stop doing something that I really loved Mm. um, because working with them was just continually re-triggering and reopening wounds of grief and trauma and pain, which I collected for a very long time um, and eventually was kind of drowning in them. Yeah. Take us to the point where you discovered psychedelic-assisted therapy? Yes. So, you know, around that 18-year mark, um, I was looking for help because I knew that there was something wrong and the work that I had done, you know, with with our wounded and and with mental health. I knew that I, I needed help. And I started talk therapy. And that talk therapy helped me to not feel so alone. But it wasn't helping me get to the root of my problems. And around that same time, I met an organization um, called Heroic Hearts Project. It was founded by an army ranger um, who himself uh, found healing through psychedelic therapy on his own and wanted to help connect other veterans to these healing modalities. Um, I was able to go, with their help, was able to go to Costa Rica, to an ayahuasca retreat. And that was my first experience with um, these types of plant medicines. And, and I understand, Juliana, in your case, and this is not in all cases, but you had tremendous relief, a release of trauma with the very first treatment. Yes, so the, the ayahuasca um, actually helped me to give myself credit for the trauma that I had in fact endured. Um, And I came home and still had work to do. I was able to 
have an experience with psilocybin, um, psilocybin mushrooms. And that was actually the experience that gave me the relief um, just with one session. Um, the session lasts about six hours and I was able to connect to all of that built up trauma and sadness and grief that I had collected and, you know, wasn't really able to experience for a whole lot of reasons um, and express. And, and it was just stuck inside of my body. And yeah. during this psilocybin experience, I was able to um, release that. Um, I woke up the next day and looked in the mirror and didn't recognize who I was looking at. Um, I was reconnected to my joyful, loving, authentic self that I, I hadn't seen in many years. Um, and that's when I knew that I had found what I had been looking for, not just for me, but for my brothers and sisters. Um, and, and that experience allowed me to get back to working with veterans again. Yeah. And what is your goal? What are your goals uh, now uh, uh, at Healing Breakthrough? What do you want to change in our society and our medical practices? Both psilocybin, the, the medicine that I used, and MDMA um, have been designated by the FDA as breakthrough therapies. Um, that means that they um, are seen to have great promise. And so the FDA allows for fast tracking of the, the clinical research around these two medicines. MDMA is quite a few years ahead of psilocybin, and as I mentioned earlier, is going to hopefully be FDA approved for uh, treatment uh, in conjunction with talk therapy um, late next year. Um, my mission is to get this therapy into the VA system so that it's available to our veterans that sorely need it. The FDA trials that were just completed um, have shown MDMA to be 67% effective in helping to treat treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress. So two-thirds of the participants no longer qualified for a PTSD diagnosis after um, their treatment with MDMA. Mm -hmm. Um, what's even more exciting is that 88% of those participants had a reduction in symptoms. Um, this medicine blows anything else that we've had um, for working with mental health problems out of the water. We have to take a break in just a moment, Juliana, but um, in the last minute before we do, uh, and we're going to add others to this conversation who can elaborate on many of the points that you've uh, been making here, but in short form, what do you see as the biggest challenges uh, to having this more broadly used, the FDA breakthrough uh, designation, certainly key there, but what do you see as far as the challenges in changing uh, minds in the VA and the political establishment? Yeah, you know, surprisingly, um, the VA is, is excited about this. Um, we have clinicians there that understand the science behind it and want to get it into the VA system. Um, the hurdle that we're coming up against is, is funding. And so that is why I'm focused on getting um, government funding to support the already ongoing clinical trials that are happening 
and expanding those trials for MDMA nationally. And hopefully psilocybin, the other breakthrough therapy, is going to be soon to follow. We'll be back in just a moment with Juliana Mercer, Director of Veteran Advocacy for the group Healing Breakthrough. And as you just heard, she's also a Marine Corps uh, veteran. When we come back, uh, we'll talk with Iowa researchers who are uh, busy in this exciting new field uh, as we discuss how psychedelic drugs, psilocybin, MDMA, uh, poised to enter the scientific mainstream, uh, perhaps our medicine to treat disorders, uh, depression, anxiety, chronic pain, and as you just heard, PTSD. It's River to River. I'm Ben Kiefer. Back in just a moment. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to an archive edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. Talking this hour, really fascinating, a breakthrough therapy as designated by the FDA early days and the, the, the speed at which this has gained credence and um, looking forward to more testing in the medical community is really amazing. How psychedelic drugs uh, are poised to enter our mainstream to treat disorders, depression, anxiety, chronic pain, and PTSD. Juliana Mercer, uh, Director of Veteran Advocacy for a group called Healing Breakthrough. She's a uh, Marine Corps veteran as well. In our first part, she described a uh, her deployments in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and uh, uh, developing PTSD and how she was treated uh, with a psychedelic therapy uh, aided by uh, Together with Talk Therapy. Let's have Dr. Michael Flom join us as well. Uh, he's a professor emeritus of psychiatry at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Welcome back to our program. It's been a while, Dr. Flom. Yes, thank you. It's good to be back, Ben. You were on the faculty of the UI Department of Psychiatry for some 30 years. That's right. And we had you on the program a number of times uh, during your uh, tenure. Uh, you took early retirement, something like five years ago. Yep. Now, uh, when did research into psychedelics enter your professional life? Pretty soon after I uh, moved from uh, my full-time job to emeritus, I actually was not intending to retire. I was just intending to focus on things that I really cared about. And I care about many things, and this is just one of them. But uh, I think within the first month or two after I stepped down from my position, I went to our departmental chair, Dr. Peg Napolis, who's important because she's been such a great champion of this. And I said, I said, Peg, I have some departmental funds that I could use to go to this meeting. But if you don't want me to go to the meeting or if you don't want me to use departmental funds, I would understand that, and I won't. And she said, why? I said, well, it's a meeting about psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, and I don't know if you're comfortable with that. And she said, not only am I comfortable with that, but I'm really glad that you're doing that because it's clearly coming, and I want us to be prepared. Right. And give us some historical context, because what you said is important. Your reticence is, uh, is, a, is a clue to our history here, because had you had that conversation with a department head 
five, what, you give me the number, five, ten years before, you would have been maybe not even mentioned it. Certainly. I was very, un, uh, yeah, while I was still working full-time, I did not want to be associated with psychedelics because of the stigma that remained. But really, I mean, we are past that at this point. We, If anything, I'm a little worried that we're in uh, the aspect of the hype cycle okay. where we may be starting to get to inflated expectations. So I don't we know wanna, if you're we familiar wanna, with the hype cycle, but it's an important one. Not, not really, but I mean, I get the sense we want the hype the hope to match the hype. Yeah, I think I think things have changed quite a bit over the last just five years since my retirement. And now the full medical establishment, I can't go to a regular psychiatric meeting these days without major uh, presentations on psychedelics. The NIH had its first conference, National Institute of Health sponsored its first conference on psychedelics now uh, well over a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it's firmly established. And as our first guest uh, mentioned, uh, the, the pace of this is pretty quick. We expect MDMA to be available probably within a year or so. And many suggest that psilocybin is probably not more than three to four years from FDA approval. And this excitement, this designation as a breakthrough therapy, is based on what evidence thus far? The first phase of psychedelic research was in the 1950s and 1960s and was actually quite promising. And then it was completely clamped down upon for reasons that I won't go into right now, but they were not scientific. They were political. And It was really in the background, and there were people who were still doing it, but very much undercover. The second phase of psychedelic research started probably about 20 years ago now. And uh, some of the studies initially, really tiny little studies, but really impactful. So one of the really impactful studies took something like 15 people who had terminal diagnoses, and who were struggling terribly with depression and anxiety Mm -hmm. in the face of their coming death. And one treatment with a classic psychedelic, I can't remember if it was psilocybin or LSD, in about eight or nine of those those people was absolutely transformative. And that little study ended up in probably the highest impact medical journal in the world, the New England Journal of Medicine, and started shepherding in a host of other studies that have been going on now really since the early 2000s in many different areas. And as uh, Juliana pointed out in the first episode, I mean, in the first segment, rather, some really quite remarkable uh, findings uh, across a variety of disorders. Juliana, I want to go back to you since you've been treated uh, with this type of research, psychedelic drugs, together with talk therapy. Juliana, how, you know, for those of us who've never experienced psychedelics, have not needed it or or used it recreationally, um, uh, what is that experience like? Um, and I don't know if you had any prior experience to it. It's really hard. I, I, I gather it's, it's, it's a hard thing to understand unless you experienced it, or can you describe it in some way? Yes. So MDMA specifically, um, I like to describe it as it switching off your, your fear receptor. So somebody that has post-traumatic stress um, is, has that, that switch stuck on. 
Um, they're stuck in a trauma response of fight, flight, freeze, fawn, and they don't have, they're not able to switch it off, which is why they are so sensitive and have, you know, big reactions to, to things that, you know, maybe like a firework or something. Um, MDMA allows that switch to be flipped and allows you to go into the root causes of your trauma without that trauma response. It also connects you to more love and it allows you to start to process some of the things that maybe had been creating fear or trauma or causing those trauma responses. So with that switch off, you're able to start processing things that you didn't have access to because that switch was on and it was blocking your access to those mm-hmm. things. And, and Juliana, I, under, I understand though the episode, the treatment can in some cases be unpleasant. Was it for you? I unpacked a lot of trauma and grief. I think there is a, a misconception that you re-experience the traumatic events or that you have to you have to go back in and, and really unpack those events. For me, I was able to actually connect to the emotions that I wasn't able to connect to, say, when I was working with a wounded vet and I had to put on a, a strong a strong face for them and be positive. And I couldn't show them how upset or sad I was for them. Or when I was, you know, in in country and we'd have to, you know, go to essentially a, a funeral, but not able to cry, um, not able to actually take time to process that grief. Mm-hmm. Those things were all stuck inside of me and the psilocybin allowed me to connect to and finally experience those emotions, um, but also through experiencing them, releasing them from from my body, um, from my, my mind and, and from my spirit. If you just joined us, Juliana Mercer with us of uh, Healing Breakthrough. She's a Marine Corps veteran as well. Dr. Michael Flom, uh, emeritus uh, professor of psychiatry at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Uh, how psychedelic drugs uh, are uh, poised to enter the scientific mainstream in our medical community, uh, treating a variety of disorders. Uh, Dr. Flom, let me ask you, sitting across from me, listening to Juliana describe that experience there, I want to hear from a psychiatrist how you interpret what happens in the brain with this type of therapy. Perhaps a lot of unanswered questions, but what what can be said about what does happen? Very simply, I want to make one point to what Juliana was saying, because we're lumping MDMA and psilocybin into one category. And in fact, a lot of people would suggest that the so-called classic psychedelics, such as psilocybin, LSD, and a few others, are a bit different than MDMA. Mm. And I would suggest that their therapeutics are a bit different as well. So one thing that Juliana, I think, was suggesting is that MDMA allows people who have been severely traumatized to avail themselves in a better way to existing evidence-based psychotherapies. So if you're so traumatized by thinking about an event, 
how can you take advantage of a psychotherapy that involves talking about that event? Because you can't even face it. Yeah, it triggers all kinds of fear responses and very strong emotional responses that shut you down. So MDMA allows people to be available to the kinds of psychotherapies that have been effective for people with other disorders but have not been effective for people with PTSD. That's a very important distinction. I think psilocybin probably works in a different manner. I don't think... I th- I'm not. I don't think we know that manner. Um, one of the tragedies of shutting down psychedelic research in the '70s was that these medicines have such a uh, potential to help us understand so many higher brain functions, and so we are starting to learn about the brain through studying these drugs, but we're really not at a point where we could say, aha, this is exactly how it works. So fascinating, and the hour is slipping away from us. Uh, This um, hour is is recorded, uh, not live for our audience, but I have an email question from a listener. Um, uh, Perhaps, Dr. Flom, you can answer this. What are the risks of being treated with psychedelic drugs in this way? Do any patients uh, suffer from adverse and irreversible harm that we know of? Well, I think, um, you know, one of the things that happened in the 70s, late 60s, early 70s, was this incredible barrage of the negative outcomes of psychedelics, which were clearly overstated. Um, The bottom line is that with appropriate so-called set and setting, i.e., if people are adequately prepared um, and the setting is one that is safe, Mm-hmm. and appropriate with skilled therapists such as Dr. Mauro, who's with us today, mm-hmm. um, the likelihood of adverse events are really quite low compared to the likelihood of adverse events with all other kinds of therapies that we have to offer. Before this segment ends, uh, Dr. Flom, you, you teed this up nicely. We have uh, another guest to welcome, Candida Maurer. He is a licensed psychologist based here in Iowa, research scientist uh, in the University of Iowa Department of Psychiatry uh, in the Psychedelic Medicine Program. Uh, Candida Mauro, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you, Ben. You've been listening along here. Um, so uh, I gather uh, that your background is important here in psychology and also in alternative medicine. You have a long history of alternative medicine uh, treatments. How did you come to, to psychedelics as a treatment? Yeah, that's actually a longer story than I think would be helpful. But I would say I had a very traumatic childhood. And when I got into my 20s, I experimented with psychedelic medicines. And I was a hippie and all of that stuff. And that was what was going on in my group of people. and it really changed me. It allowed me to see just my life and actually reality in a new way. And that stayed with me, even though I didn't do psychedelics for, I don't know, 40, 50 years. And and then they started being on the scene again. And I I just lit up in my brain, and I said, I'm going to study this. I need to know more about this. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what are you researching in the psychedelic medicine program at the University of Iowa Department of Psychiatry? 
Yeah, we are really excited. We're just about ready to start the actual research project. We've been getting through FDA approval and other kinds of approval. And we are going to be working, we're doing a pilot study with um, alcohol use disordered people. Um, and we will be comparing psilocybin to ketamine, which is another new drug that's out there being used for a variety of things, including depression. And as far as we know, nobody has actually compared ketamine to psilocybin. So we're very excited to see what the results of this are. And we're going to be doing brain imaging as well. So we're going to get a look at what these medicines do to the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Flom, give us an idea of the, uh, we mentioned a lot of different drugs and a lot of different uh, illnesses. Uh, ferret those apart a little bit for us so we can understand uh, what, what we should be thinking about. So MDMA primarily has been studied for PTSD and looks like the drug of choice for PTSD. Uh, the classic psychedelics, uh, such as psilocybin, have been studied in uh, treatment refractory depression, uh, have been studied in a variety of substance abuse disorders, including, by the way, very interestingly, cigarette smoking, and has had really, in early studies, pretty dramatic improvement relative to existing treatments. Um, but a wide variety of disorders, eating disorders. Um, uh, we mentioned ketamine briefly, which is a longer story than we could probably get into now. Mm-hmm. But ketamine is a drug that has been available as an anesthetic, both in humans and animals, for decades. And it was only recognized over the last uh, 20 years or so that it looks like it has pretty good antidepressant properties as well. And the reason that we're bringing up ketamine, one, is that we're doing this study that, as Candida mentioned, I think will be the first to compare psilocybin and ketamine both in terms of its clinical response and its brain imaging response. But the other reason that ketamine becomes important is something that I hope that we can talk about, perhaps in the next segment and perhaps when a representative joins us. Because one of the things that I really appreciate about what Juliana's group is doing is thinking now about access and how these drugs are going to be made available you asked early, what are, the, what are the barriers? And one of them that Juliana mentioned is the financial barrier. Mm-hmm. And there's a workforce barrier of getting people to train to use these. So I hope we can talk about some of those issues. And we'll, we'll aim to do that when we return with uh, Dr. Michael Flom, psychiatrist, um, emeritus professor of psychiatry at the UI Hospitals, involved with research, uh, as is uh, Canada Maurer, uh, psychologist, also research scientist in the psychedelic medicine program at the University of Iowa Department of Psychiatry. And also with us, Juliana Mercer um, of the um, group Healing Breakthrough. We'll be back in just a moment. It's River to River from IPR News. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to an archive edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News.
fascinating discussion today about psychedelic drugs and how they may be part of medical treatment, mainstream medical treatment in the near future. The FDA has uh, given them a breakthrough therapy designation because of such promising studies that have already been done in the last few years. Joining us, uh, Juliana Mercer is with us, Director of Veteran Advocacy for Healing Breakthrough. Uh, She's a Marine Corps veteran who herself suffered from PTSD and also was helped by this type of therapy with the combination of talk therapy and psychedelics. Uh, Also, Dr. Michael Flom, professor of psychiatry emeritus at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics, uh, involved in some very exciting research uh, currently, as is Candida Maurer, a licensed psychologist, and and also uh, she is involved as a research scientist in uh, this latest research. Let me turn to you, uh, Canada, if I may. So many questions surrounding this. We won't get to all of them this hour, but, you know, when we talk uh, about psychedelics, and we've touched on it, there's so much baggage there from the 60s, from the 70s. What do you run into when you tell people, lay people or perhaps medical people, that this is a focus of your research? Misunderstandings? Definitely misunderstandings from some people and real joy from other people. So there's enough publicity out there now about psychedelics that there are a large number of people who are seeking assistance, and they are very happy to hear that it's happening in Iowa. Juliana, to you, I think I can direct this to you, first of all, another email question from one of our listeners. We touched on it, but perhaps you can emphasize what this listener is getting at. How important is it that you are in the care of someone thoroughly knowledgeable in this field when receiving treatment, Juliana? I think that that's a a crucial part of it being a therapy. There's preparation that needs to happen, which is generally talk therapy, and really understanding why it is that you're going into this type of experience. And then while you're in the experience with the medicine, making sure that there's someone there that is able to keep you safe and can can help you if you do need assistance while you're under the influence of the medication. Candida, what difference can that make, the setting, the expectations, uh, the, the training of the person who uh, helps with that treatment. It, it can mean all the difference, it sounds like. Absolutely. For instance, if someone just decides to use psilocybin on their own and go to a party or even stay in their room, they are quite likely not to receive the benefits. One of the things Juliana said, and, and I'm sure she knows this already, she didn't mention the integration that needs to occur after the experience is over. And I'm sure she is still integrating her experience because that's Mm -hmm. what happens. And theoretically and hopefully, anybody using these medications not only is prepared, but afterwards they experience a loving person who is willing to sit with them and figure out what does this mean in your life and how are things going to be different. And that's, that's Canada, that's what you mean by integration. I'm not quite latching on to what is yeah. behind that word. Is, is sorting out what you experienced? Definitely. So one of the things I will be doing, and I'm assuming Dr. Flaum will be doing, is sitting with people afterwards and 
asking them what insights occurred to them during their experience. And major insights come to people. It's quite remarkable. They see things in a new way, quite literally. Things that had been buried for years come to the surface and they can see them and understand them. And of course, that means there's going to be a lot of information to unpack and to put into some kind of action in their lives that changes things for them. Yeah. Dr. Flom, would you like to comment on, on that as well, the integration or anything to add there? Pretty well. I would just say that it's not a casual thing and that we should be thankful to people like Candida who got herself trained to do this work. I don't know how many hundreds of hours, I think it was a couple of hundreds of hours of training to help people be prepared for this work and to do this very important integration work. And one of the reasons that's a concern is this may go in another direction. So, for example, the legislation in, in Oregon, as people may know, sort of demedicalized or de-health serviceized the use of psychedelics. And now, in order to work with someone with psychedelics in the state of Oregon today, as of January 2023, I believe, you have to have 130 hours of training. That's true. But you also need a high school degree, and that's it. So doing this right, when we talk about building a workforce that can do this right, that is not a simple issue. And Canada is a testament to that. I think she's the only person that I am aware of in the state of Iowa that has been adequately trained to do this work. I think that's true, yeah. Mm, yeah. Canada, I'm sure there's so many questions that our listeners would have. I'm sure they have one. And, you know, when we mention psychedelics, what about the safety of psychedelics in this setting, in this controlled setting with the cautions that have been mentioned attached? Is it, from what we can tell, safe? Very much so. In fact, at the end of virtually every piece of research, there's a thing called adverse events. And Almost every single research article says no adverse events, meaning nobody had a difficult experience that was so difficult that it became a problem, that it became an emergency of some sort. And you're separating this because I can, I can imagine listeners out there who had a, quote, bad trip. And, and right. but but that would be you know taking it in your in your bedroom or with a group of friends around a campfire or something like that. You, you're not talking about that sort of setting. Correct. That is exactly right. Yeah. And it's not that people on their own don't have good experiences because certainly they do. But it's much much safer to be guided by people who are experienced and know know the territory. Another. I have to believe frequently asked question, Canada, to you, this is a drug. Is it addictive? Uh, I mean, it, it's, it seems so separate from other drugs because you have this treatment, the treatment, the experience wears off, but the benefits remain. So do you need to keep taking it? How long-lasting are benefits from what we can tell now? Yeah, it, these drugs are not addictive, and that is a very important point, and I'm glad you brought it up, Ben. And the, the effects last variably for people. So, for instance, many of the research protocols have one trip only, okay, one experience, and they still get excellent results. Some of the research has two or three experiences, and they still get the really good results. 
we don't really know. These are a lot of the questions that need to be answered. It's like how many medicine experiences do we need to have in order to maintain or improve our mental health? And we don't know. We just don't know at this point. Coming up on the final less than 10 minutes of this conversation, Dr. Flom, in the break, um, you mentioned another concern that hasn't been mentioned that you had, health equity. Explain that. Well, I think the experience that we're seeing in ketamine is very concerning. Right now, ketamine is increasingly widely available. You can get ketamine. There's a clinic in Coralville. And if you call and ask what insurance they take, it's very, very limited. And these are expensive treatments. The study that Juliana mentioned early that had a 67% success rate cost about, I believe, $11,000 per person, which over time pays off, but that's steep. And what I'm very concerned about is setting up a two-tiered system at a time when we're starting to pay attention to health equity. Are we setting ourselves up for a time when only those who can afford these medicines will have access to them? And I think we have to be very proactive in figuring out ways to avoid that. Mm -hmm. One more guest to introduce to our conversation before we end this hour. State Representative Jeff Shipley joins us by phone, a Republican. Representative Shipley, welcome to the program. You're from the, the Van Buren County area, aren't you? Yes, sir. That's correct. Good. You're an advocate for psychedelic-based therapy. As a lawmaker, you proposed changes into the 2023 session, perhaps before that, that I'm not aware of. What are you advocating for Iowa state law? Yeah, so House File 240, which did have a real good subcommittee meeting, and and, uh, we had unanimous support 3-0 on that, just would have deleted psilocybin and psilocin from the drug scheduling Obviously, it would still be scheduled at the federal level, so technically enforceable. But I guess the question we were trying to ask is what really is the justification for the criminalization of these substances? Psilocybin is the one I'm most familiar with. And, you know, when you look at other controlled substances, it's very easy to kind of make that link to criminal behavior or types of things that would be disruptive to society. But I think the question we had in our committee is, hey, if someone's taken a microdose of mushrooms and then they maybe give someone else some mushrooms for a bona fide medical or religious purpose, you know, why would they be charged as a felon under Iowa law? And it would be on the state to really articulate, you know, the criminal nature of merely possessing these substances. So that's kind of how we try to approach the issue. And it was actually our fifth year talking about it. And Mm. we finally uh, passed a bill out of subcommittee. Mm-hmm. What are your expectations for the bill, for the law change in the future? Well, you know, it did get funneled, but um, I mean, I, I think we're gaining significant ground in the discussion. I think there's definitely a need. I think uh, the mental health crises is becoming kind of more acute and certainly a priority for the public. And people are desperate for therapies that are actually effective, therapies that work, therapies that don't have um, a high rate of adverse outcomes. So I think as the public gets more familiar, I think that's kind of been our biggest challenge is just explaining what psilocybin and psilocin is to, say, legislators that, um, you know, are maybe not familiar with the substance. So I think we do have to all educate ourselves. um, But I think what I'm seeing is the people are just going ahead and using these tools anyway. 
So, you know, the state of Iowa really can't stop an idea that uh, that a time has come. And so I think just, you know, getting cooperation with our local uh, sheriffs and prosecutors and just making sure everyone's communicating what we're doing and why we're doing it and that we're all, uh, you know, safe adults that are operating in the best interest of ourselves and the community. Um, I mean, people are already doing this. At least I know in my community, no one's waiting for permission to heal. So we, we, We're coming up on the final minutes here. I'll ask for, for very short answers to the, the questions I have for all of you here in the few remaining minutes. To you, Representative Shipley, what is the basis of your interest in this type of therapy? Personal experience, someone you know? How did you get turned on to this? I classify it as religious use and just an indiv- helping an individual figure out their relationship to existence. Okay. Juliana Mercer, let's go back to you where we started this program. You mentioned uh, funding as a key to to having this go forward effectively and safely, right? Yes. um, To date, all of the studies around MDMA-assisted therapy have been through public funds and philanthropists. It's time for our government to get skin in in the game and help support these clinical trials in the VA system. Juliana, how do listeners find out more? Let's say this is one of their very first uh, acquaintances with, with this kind of medicine. Their mind is, wouldn't be surprised if their mind is blown by this, uh, this conversation. <laughs> how do you find out more? How do you investigate and, and uh, answer the many questions that you might have? Yeah, I think first and foremost, if, if you're a veteran that's in need, reach out to Heroic Hearts Project. They can connect you to answers around these types of therapies. And if you're a public citizen that wants to learn more, um, I think MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, is a good place to go. And you can also go to healingbreakthrough.org to find out more about the work we're doing on this legislation. Dr. Flom, we have just a minute or two left of this conversation. Uh, What thoughts, perhaps not mentioned yet, do you want to leave us with? It is an extremely exciting area, Ben, but people should also recognize that it's going to take some time. MDMA is probably going to be available pretty soon, but the others, it's going to take some time. And in terms of what our legislature uh, person suggested, our recommendation is that these medicines be used with Psycho, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. That's different than just taking psychedelics, and I don't think we're advocating for that. Right, and so you're going back to the history, the baggage connected to this. Don't make the same mistake twice. Don't even go I think close. as a society, we have to be careful about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have to train a workforce, and we have to figure out how to deliver these medicines in a way that is going to be most effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, the final word to you, Candida Maurer. First of all, these medicines are safe and with appropriate help and appropriate guidance, people get better in a remarkable way. Faster, um, more easily, people are simply getting better. And it is a remarkable thing to witness. And honestly, I'm going to even use the word miracle because occasionally there are actual miracles of healing. And I bet Juliana could attest to that. Yeah. Juliana, would you call it a miracle for for you in in your case? Absolutely. Um, 20 years of trauma and grief leaving me in a six-hour session uh, definitely could be classified as a a miracle. Mm -hmm. Dr. Flom, quickly uh, before we go, 
Um, should people interested in this go mention this to their their physician, to their psychologist, psychiatrist at this point, or, or is that time hasn't it come? Certainly, uh, most physicians are not going to be in a position to be helpful at this point. I think people can start talking to their psychiatrists about it, but again. I think we're talking about a number of years before this is widely available. We are beginning clinical trials at the University of Iowa, and I'm really glad that we're doing that so that we're in a position to deliver these therapies in a responsible manner as soon as possible. Dr. Flom and Kenneth Amara will check back with you on the research. Uh, we, it would be hard not to check back with you with the excitement in the air here. Thank you, Canada and Dr. Flom, for joining us. Thank you, Ben. And... Uh, I, I thank our legislator for his advocacy. Okay. And well, thank I, you. I was going to say one more thing. Sure. One thing people can do is contact your legislator, uh, not just Jeff, because he's doing a fantastic job. We need to contact all of our legislators and let them know about this. Okay. Thank you, Canada. Representative uh, Shipley, thank you very much for joining us uh, for the final part of this hour. Hey, you're welcome. Great to be with you guys. Thanks, everyone, for all the work you're doing. Thank you. And Juliana Mercer, thanks to you. You led off our program. And uh, thank you for your service to our country, your story with us, and your advocacy this hour. We appreciate it. Thank you. So happy to be here. And thank you for helping us to educate the public on this. This edition of River to River, produced by Caitlin Troutman. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.